0: Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and as you're looking there, how many of you have a plan for reading through the Bible every year? I mean, you have some kind of a plan that you put in place where you read through the Bible. I've done that several years, and I think it's a very good practice for Christians to do that. I don't think it's a substitute for sometimes taking a book of the Bible and a chapter or a particular topic and studying that thing through thoroughly. But I think it's very good for us to read through the Bible and to acquaint ourselves with the uh, different books that are in the Bible and the content of those books. Now if you're like me, you'll read the Bible and there are some parts that become a little bit tedious to you and they're just not as interesting as other parts. And that's especially true when you come to certain scriptures like the genealogies. And so you may read through those, and you're kind of bored by that, and you just can't wait to get into some of the more interesting parts. But no matter how you read the Bible, there are certain portions of Scripture that are defining Scriptures. And they're of utmost importance, and while you may skip a few names that are in some genealogies and go by those very quickly, yet there are other verses in the Bible that you simply cannot miss, and you don't want to miss them because they're key to defining what the Bible is all about and what God intends for us to know. Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are key defining scriptures. Drilling down, Matthew chapter 5 is one of the most defining of the three. And drilling even further down, the verses that we're studying today, verses 43 through 48, are defining verses. Because they reveal to us the character of God and what God desires for the character to be in His people. When you're saved, you become a Christian, you can't be like the world. You can't be like people that are around you. A change must take place in your life. And if there is no change in you, then you really have not truly believed. And what makes these verses particularly important to the people that Jesus was speaking to on this particular day was that they were people who claimed to be the people of God. They had long claimed that they did believe in the one true Jehovah God, and they did say that they honored and obeyed God's law. But in fact, they were not doing that. They had no demonstration of it. Their actions didn't prove that they were the people of God, and they showed by what they did that they actually misunderstood and dishonored God's law. Now, what we're reading here is another example that Jesus gives in this fifth chapter, six examples that he... He's given of their misinterpretations of the Word of God. And if the five previous examples did not prove to them that they really weren't the children of God and practicing the the law of God correctly, then surely this example must do it for them. There's no way that they can get around the example that Jesus gives here. I want you to stand with me, please, as we read our text verses today. Matthew 5, and we're reading verses 43 down through verse 48. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, What reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, once again for the great festivities that we've had today. We just thank you, Lord, for the good singing and for the honor that we've given to our veterans. And we do thank you, Lord, for each one of them. And now as we look into your word, I just ask you, Lord, that all of our attention might be drawn to this subject and we might understand clearly what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We begin here in verse number 43 and we're very confused about how anybody can be so mixed up. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And all of us that are good American Christians, we would say, well, we've never heard of such a thing as that. We've never heard that people would believe these kinds of things. And if we have, then we think, well, that must surely be reserved for Muslims and jihadists and and experts in terrorism. Because we would never think in this way. We would never be so cruel. In the world wars, America proved that we're not vengeful people. We're not spiteful people. We fought against Germany and Italy and Japan. And our men were killed by the thousands. And when peace was obtained, though, it was the Americans who went back into those countries and came to the rescue and spent billions of dollars repairing what we had bombed into oblivion. So hate your enemy seems foreign to us. And all of us take pride in this, that at least we can do this. We pat ourselves on the back and we think that we have upheld the principles of Christ when he said, do good to them that hate you. But friends, all is not as it seems. Because while it appears that we're very good at throwing money at impersonal causes... In our daily relationships, when we meet people face-to-face and head-on, and these are people that we have to live with and we have to be around, we have to look at them on a daily basis, we really don't fare so well with Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. Let me review with you for just a few minutes, and we're going to talk in a moment about defining characteristics of God's people. In the first part of this message, we began talking about the definitions of the Jews. Now, the teaching of the old rabbis is stated by Jesus. He says, "'Ye have heard that it hath been said.'" And there he's not saying what God said, but he's saying, "'This is what the rabbis, this is what your teachers have told you, that you are to love your neighbor, but you are to hate your enemy.'" And the validity of that statement hinged on the meaning of this word, neighbor. And the Jews had defined neighbor, and they had put to it a very narrow definition. Love your neighbor to them meant that you are to love those who are like you. You are to love those who treat you well, love those who agree with you, love those who go to the synagogue with you and who think like you and sit with you and lock arms with you. Those are the people that you are supposed to love, just people who do everything as you do. And so your enemy was also defined, and he was defined as the person who doesn't do those things. He may not be like you at all. He, he may not do the same things that you do. And so what the Jews had done, they had turned this positive command that, that the Word of God has given into a negative injunction. God says that you are to love people, to love your neighbor, but the Jews had turned this into a command, and yea, a duty, that they were to hate those who were their enemies. Now, next then, we discussed the difficulties that are in the Old Testament. Moses was very clear about this, about the law and about loving God and loving your neighbor. And we've discussed on several occasions about how the law is divided into two different sections. And love is the principle that undergirds both of those sections. First four commandments are about loving God, and the six last, last six commandments are about loving your fellow man, or in other words, how that you are to treat other people. But the difficulty arose when Moses repeated God's law in the book of Deuteronomy. And at the same time, he told the people that they were to go in and they were to conquer Canaan, they were to drive out all the enemies that lived there. And so they weren't to leave any of those people in the land. And so when Joshua went in to conquer, he obliterated everything that stood in his way. That meant the men, and many times it meant the women, it meant the children, and even sometimes down to the livestock that those people owned. And Joshua understood God's command. But over the years, the Israelites didn't understand it. Joshua knew that when he went in to drive out the Canaanites, that this was not a personal vendetta. This was God's judgment against those people. These were some of the wickedest people that the world had ever seen. They were idolaters and they were molesters. They had been involved in human sacrifice. They belonged to fertility cults. And so God had passed judgment on them. And so God was going to destroy them because of their wickedness. And that's why God said that you are to drive those people out. But the Jews began to confuse God's sovereign command, God's command to judge Israel's enemies in that way, and they transferred God's command to their individual dealings with man to man. And so love your neighbor became interpreted as me and mine. Love me and mine and the enemy became you and yours. So I'm to love me and mine, but I'm to do everything that I can to stamp down, stomp down you and yours. And by the time that Jesus came along, this had turned into such hatred that there were even divisions among the Jews themselves. And so the Jews had their little cliques, and you were either defined as being my neighbor or you are my enemy. And that's what Jesus combated. He combated this twisting of the foundational principles of the law. It wasn't just the individual commands like murder and adultery and divorce and lying, but it was the whole undergirding principle of God's law, which is love. And so the whole law came crashing down around these people, and along with it, their claims that they worship true Jehovah God. Now, what Jesus does here is to prove that they have no relationship. They claim to be Abraham's children, but in fact, they're not Abraham's children because they don't know Abraham's God. And so Jesus then goes on to teach them the truth, and He shows them a difference. And He says to be God's child... He says to these people, if you want to be God's child, then your righteousness must exceed that kind of righteousness. You have got to get these pharisaical notions out of your head, and you must go back to the original intent and the meaning of God's law. And so for the sixth time, Jesus says to them, I say unto you. And then he begins to set the record straight. Well, now we go on to these defining verses. These are key verses that tell us what Christians are like. So number three, today we want to talk about the difference in Christians. And that's our subject, the difference in Christians. In verse 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Now look at that middle phrase in verse 47. What do ye more than others? And that's the question that we're trying to answer because this is the difference in Christians. Now I want to take you back for a moment to the difference between Jesus' definitions and the Pharisees' definitions. Jesus' definition of neighbor turns out to be much more than your friends and your family. It's more than those who look and act like you. In fact, what Jesus points out is that your neighbor also includes your enemy. The Jews were confused enough about the definitions that when Jesus began to speak on the subject, he asked They ask him to define this. Now, what do you exactly mean by neighbor, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And so that definition was beautifully and masterfully illustrated by Jesus. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, a few pages over in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. And here is where we find another of these defining statements and a parallel teaching to Matthew chapter 5. And in this place, there was a lawyer In other words, a law expert, and really, it's the same thing that we're talking about when we say a scribe. A scribe came to Jesus, and he thought that he was able to trip Jesus up and prove that Jesus was wrong about this, that he didn't really have the wicked heart that Jesus claimed. And so we look at Luke chapter 10, verse number 25, and it says there, "...and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him." Now that's a scribe. It's what the Bible's talking about. The very same people that we've been discussing. This certain lawyer, this scribe, stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here we see that Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And this man says, this scribe, and he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now there's the scribe, and he is quoting from the Old Testament. He knows the Scriptures inside and out. And so he goes to the book of Deuteronomy, and he quotes what Moses said. And he prides himself that he knows exactly what God's law says, and he knows what he's talking about. But he's arguing with Jesus, and Jesus is someone who's never been to their schools. He's never sat under their rabbis. And so surely the scribe thinks that I'm going to confound Jesus with my thinking on this subject. And Jesus replied to him. And when he did, the scribe must have felt like Jesus was a little bit condescending to him. Because Jesus says in verse 28, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. As if this scribe was looking for Jesus' approbation. He didn't really care. But Jesus, he thought, was kind of speaking down to him. And so this man, in verse 29, But he willing to justify himself. Now, the scribe didn't like the answer that Jesus was giving. It was too short for him. And so he desired to press this point and to justify himself and show to others that were listening there and standing around that Jesus does not know what he's talking about, that he was really a man who did love God and he did love his neighbor and he understood very clearly what the law said. He had just quoted it. And so he continued to ask questions. And this next question that he asked is one that he wished that he never asked. But he willing, verse 29, to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And now Jesus is going to give the definition, the real definition of neighbor. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, the scribes said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Man, you talk about a gut-wrenching illustration. Maybe you don't see the implications of this at first. But what Jesus said here struck at that pharisaical self-righteousness in a way that nothing else that Jesus could say would ever do. Now, let's break it down here very quickly. And let's see what Jesus is telling him. This is the story, and all of you are familiar with it, of the Good Samaritan. And the Bible says here that there was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Most certainly that man was a Jew, and that's Jesus' point here. And on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was beaten, and he was robbed, and he was left for dead. There was another man who came traveling the same way, and he spotted the man who was lying there. And this man was a priest. He also was a Jew, and he was one who was very well acquainted with the law. And we would say, a priest, well, that means that he was a preacher. And just by the very nature of his occupation, we would think that what this man would do, he would stop and he would help this man who had been beaten and robbed. But the priest decided that he didn't want to get involved in all of this, and so he just went on and he left that poor man lying there with his wounds and about to die. Then there was a second man who came along, and this man was a Levite. And of course, that means that he was also a Jew. But he likewise saw the man in that condition, and he showed no compassion upon him. But then there was a third man who came along. And this man was a Samaritan. He was someone who was hated and despised by the Jews. He was an enemy of the Jews. The Jews deplored Samaritans. The Jews went so far that they wouldn't even step foot in the Samaritans' country. They made their journey all the way around there, took a long way around just so they wouldn't have to step in that country where Samaritans lived and thereby be defiled by just walking on the ground where Samaritan walked. But the Samaritan saw the Jew and he had compassion on this man and he picked him up and he took him to a place of recovery and he even paid for his care. Now at this point, Jesus has this scribe in a headlock. And what he has to do is to admit to Jesus' irrefutable logic. Jesus said, who is the man's neighbor? And the scribe had no choice but to say, the man who showed him mercy. And so I suppose that the scribe with contortions on his face had to admit the real definition, the real law definition of a neighbor. Your neighbor may very well be your worst enemy. He may even be a Samaritan. And the Bible says that you must show him mercy, love, and compassion. Now, in our text in Matthew, Jesus said, Well, if you love those who love you, then how are you different than the worst of sinners? Because they do the very same thing. If you treat your brethren well, how is that any different from anyone else? How is that different from a hated tax collector? Because he knows enough to do the same. So what makes you different? And the answer to that question, what makes you different, is described in verse number 44. You see, the real test of Christianity is not how you treat the guy that you put your arm around in church. The real test is how do you treat somebody who would throw you under a bus if they were given half a chance. So the real definition of neighbor is is every single person that you come in contact with. So you don't have to do like the Pharisees. You don't have to figure it all out and divide people in their people groups and then say, well, this is my friend and this is my enemy. These are the ones I'm supposed to love. You don't have to worry about making all the designations because every person is your neighbor. And Jesus just lays the bombshell on us all that you are to love them all. Now, what we do is we try to take this to the extreme. And maybe we did figure out who our enemy is. And we are trying to love our enemy in some way or another. And so we're trying to do something about this. We may try to love the heathen and the hater of Christianity. And we might work on that just a little bit to see if we can do a better job. But did you know that the hardest job sometimes is treating a person in your own church who is not in your little clique in the way that you should treat them? Now, we can mistreat and despise people that are in our own church because they're not in that little group that we walk around with. And the Bible is telling us here, when you do that, you are no better than a scribe and a Pharisee. And if your righteousness does not exceed that, then you are not a child of God. Now let's look at this for just a moment. We're going to see three areas that demonstrate love for your neighbor. The first one is what you do with your mouth. First, Jesus says, bless them that curse you. Blessing is something that you do with your mouth. So when people speak evil of you, do you turn around and curse them back? Now, I want to rein this in just a little bit, narrow it down somewhat, because if you can't deal with people that are in your own church and people that are right here that you're supposed to love and they're members of the body of Christ, if you can't deal with them, you're certainly not going to be able to deal with people that are on the outside that are nothing like you and may in fact be your enemies. So we're going to talk a little bit more about us right here sitting in the room today. How are we treating those that are in our own church? Do we treat them like they're supposed to be treated? Now some folks think then in the church that what I must do is I must speak my mind. And they think that speaking their mind is a virtue. Well, this person said this to me. And you should have heard what I said to them, how I replied. I really gave it back to him. I told him a thing or two. And so they think that because they've come back with some kind of a witty reply and they can embarrass that person back, that their friends will admire them and they'll say, well, what a witty person that you are. You really stood your ground as if that was the right thing to do. But you know what that is? It's an act of selfishness. And you're selfish because you think, well, I deserve better than that. I deserve better than people should talk to me like that, and so I'm going to get back of them. Someone does something, and so you decide that you're going to defend your honor, even if it means that you're going to degrade theirs. But that's not the character of Christ. Peter wrote about Christ, and he said, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth, Righteously. Paul said something very interesting in Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to notice the reference. He said, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, Take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now that is really a fascinating reference, Because what Paul is speaking of here when he says... Bite and devour and being consumed one of another. He's actually alluding to a wolf, a pack of wolves that gets into the sheepfold. Now that's what we would expect. We would expect that a wolf would try to get in among the sheep. And if he can get into the sheepfold, it's exactly what he will do. He will bite the sheep and he will devour the sheep. But what you don't expect is that the sheep are going to start eating each other. And what Paul says here, and what he's trying to point out, is that when people start doing this, they can eat up, end up in a feeding frenzy on one another. And you watch it, and you see if this is not the way that it works. Because you take one person who's poisoned in the church, and he begins to jaw against other people, speaks against other people, what happens? Others begin to join in, and they begin to join in the frenzy, and they get in on the feeding. And you take one person, and he'll poison lots of people. Now, what are we? What does the Scripture say that we are? It says that we are the sheep of his pasture, and it is not characteristic for sheep, a.k.a. Christians, to eat one another, to bite and devour one another. Now, if there was ever a Pharisaical way of living, that's it. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And so if you're a Christian who lives for this, for putting down other people, devouring other Christians, and getting your way, and pushing people around, and saying what you want to say, and and just causing all kinds of trouble, then you're no better than a Pharisee. That's exactly what they did. They hated other Jews and treated them wrong who are not a part of their sect. And Jesus says, if your righteousness does not exceed that kind of righteousness, you're not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and he says in verse 44, Do good to them that hate you. And what is that? Well, this is what you do with your manners. The difference in a Christian is what you do with your manners. And it's kind of amazing that the Pharisees would miss all of this because, and those scribes because they claimed that they were doctors of the law and they claimed that they were experts in the law. And the law all the time was very clear about this, about how you treat those who are your enemies. I want to give you an example from the book of Exodus. And this is in the very same discourse where uh, Jesus was giving Moses the law. This is where uh, on Mount Sinai that God was explaining all this and giving him all these directions. And in this very same discourse where God gave him the Ten Commandments, this is what it says. Exodus chapter 23. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Now what do you think that God was trying to tell the people of Israel? Was it all about just oxes and donkeys and things like that? No, he was trying to teach them a lesson, a principle, about how they were to treat other people. And so here is an Israelite, and he's out walking in a field, and he sees an ox that's wandering out there. And his obvious conclusion would be, well, there's an ox that belongs to somebody. And so he says, well, what good fortune that I've had. I've found an ox. And so I'll take this ox home and I'll keep him. Finders, keepers, what good luck I've had today, I've found an ox. Then he says, neither if you see your enemy's donkey laboring under a burden, and this animal is hot and thirsty and is about to break down, and you say, well, that's tough for him. I don't like that guy. I don't care if his animal dies. And what God says, if you see the ox, you corral him and you take him home and you take care of him as long as it takes until the, until the owner comes along. And if that owner is an enemy, then you still take care of that ox and then you take it back to him. And he says, if this is a man's donkey and he's laboring under a burden, then you take the burden off of that donkey and you give him some food and some water and you don't let the animal die. Why? Because that is the character of someone who cares For his brother. And what happens when you do that? What the law is trying to teach us there. And it's just another point that shows us that all of these laws that God gave are good for us even today. The whole point of it is that you can take an enemy and make him your friend. And if he doesn't become your friend and he still mistreats you. Then you heap shame upon him by continually doing well to him. That is the character of Christ. And the Bible says, if you do this for your friends only, then how would that make you any different from a guy who knows nothing at all about Christ? I can show you dozens and dozens and dozens of people who treat mom and dad well. And I can show you lots of people that treat their best buddy at work well. But the question is, what do you do with the person who would do the exact opposite to you? What if this is a person who would take your ox home and butcher it? And fill his freezer up with your ox. What do you do about that? You wouldn't have any idea what happened to that ox. How do you treat those that you know will not treat you well, haven't treated you well? What will you do with them? You see, a Christian is a totally different type of person. And then he gives a third example of difference. He says, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And this is what you do with your mediation. What you do with your mediation, because when you're praying and you're praying for someone, you're mediating, you're you're bringing them before God. Now the Pharisees would certainly pray, but they prayed those imprecatory prayers against their personal enemies. And I hope you remember that last week that we talked about this, these imprecatory prayers. And that was a problem in the Old Testament, because what the people did, they misinterpreted that. They didn't understand what was going on with these imprecatory prayers. An imprecatory prayer is a prayer for God's punishment. It's for God's retribution to come upon your enemies. And they had turned that into prayers that they prayed personally. Now, David prayed those types of prayers, and Nehemiah prayed that way. But when they prayed in such a manner, they were always praying for the protection of God against their enemies. You can't pray like that on an individual basis. And yet, that's what the Pharisees did. When that self-righteous Pharisee stood up and he prayed, God, I have tithed. God, I have lived a clean life. God, I have fasted. I don't commit adultery. I don't act like that old tax collector. It was the very same thing as saying, God, you have a right to judge the sinner. You have a right to judge him because he's a sinner. And so you pour out your wrath upon that old publican because he doesn't do things like I do them. We're not to pray that way. We're to pray for the souls of our enemies. And we're to say, Lord, that guy that mistreats me and curses me and makes fun of me and mocks my love for you, I want you to save him. That guy at work who gives me trouble every single day because I'm a Christian, you say, God, he treats me bad, but I want you to save him because I want to live with him in eternity. Now, do you pray like that? Or is your attitude, they treated me bad, they're sinners, And so God, have judgment on them. Give them what they deserve. You see, that's the difference in a Christian. And let me explain something more to you. And then we're going to wind this down just a little bit. And we'll take up another part of it next week. But there's nothing that really opened my eyes to this terrible conundrum of how you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for somebody who curses you and treats you badly. Nothing really opened my eyes as much as this next statement that I'm going to make. It's against every fiber of my being to do this, to love my enemy and to pray for him unless I understand this next statement. God does not say that you have to like them. He says that you have to love them. Now, do you get this? Nowhere does the Scripture say that you have to like them because there are people that don't mesh with you. There are people that are like putting oil and water together. They don't have your personality. They don't fit in with you. And when you like somebody, there's always an emotional attachment to that person. It's, it's something that you do emotionally. And how well that you do with that person depends on how you feel about them. You may not like someone, but that doesn't govern at all the way that you have to treat another person. You see, we have an idea that love is an emotion. And so that's why we attach romantic feelings to love. So what happens when romance goes out of a marriage? Well, for most people, the love goes out with it because their love was superficial. It wasn't really built upon a biblical principle. It's just about things that they feel like doing. But real love, according to the Bible, is not an emotional feeling. Love is something that you decide to do. It's an act of your will. And an act of your will is something that you can do. And so if Jesus said, well, you have to like your enemy, he'd be saying that, well, you have to have an emotional attachment to him. And so then he would have a bunch of messed up and hopeless followers. But Jesus doesn't say you have to like them. He says you have to love them. And by that he means you need to make a conscious decision to treat him well. Can you do that? Of course you can. You see, you can get hopelessly bogged down and you can be miserable trying to like everybody instead of loving them. Now, if you don't like somebody, don't ever show them that you don't like it. Like them. and You know that happens right here in our church. You don't like somebody, and so you make it very plain that you don't like them. Everybody knows by the way that you treat them, by how you act around them, that you don't like that person. And so people go around with hurt feelings, and not liking turns into mistreatment. Loving people is overcoming dislike in treatment. Now don't go away saying, well, Pastor Smith has given us a whole new definition of love today and I really don't have to like anybody. I don't, I don't need to like anybody. Well, if you don't like anybody, then the problem is not them, the problem is you. The problem is you. Because you know what happens when you start loving people like you should? You start liking them a little bit better. And if you don't start liking people more, then you haven't loved them in the right way. Now, let me finish by cautioning you about something. We're talking about what makes a Christian different from everybody else. But I'm not talking about something mechanical here that you put into place, and everybody out there in the world is able to do this. And I'm not saying, well, what you need to do is you need to read the Sermon on the Mount, and you need to do it, read it over and over and over again, and then you are to start applying the principles to your life, and then you can become a Christian. Unfortunately, that's the way the majority of people interpret the Sermon on the Mount. For all the things that Jesus has said about heart righteousness, what they still tried to do is to apply external righteousness. And so they say, well, if I do all these things, that will make me a Christian. Well, let me let you in on something. And that is that you can become, you can be a Buddhist, and you can do all of these things. You can be an Eastern mystic, and you can do all of these things. You can apply the very same things, and you can be just as lost as a goose and try to apply things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the difference in a Christian is that he has a special relationship with God. And his love and his treatment of other people flow out of a heart that has been redeemed and purified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't do these things to become a Christian. He does these things because he is a Christian. And so that means that if these particular things do not characterize your life, then something is wrong with your heart. You may not be a Christian at all. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they claimed that they knew God, but their lives really showed nothing like this. Anger and lust and lying and retaliation and hatred. It's the way that they lived. And the reason they lived that way is because that was a product of an evil heart. And so if you haven't got these things corrected, if you can stay right here in the church and treat other people in the church like this, people that you're supposed to love and you can mistreat them and you can show other people that you mistreat them, well, there's something wrong with your heart. And so I think this means that there's a lot of us that need to do some soul searching. And some of us need to look really deep down inside and find out where our motivating factors come from. But the Bible says, Jesus said, a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit. A good tree will not bring forth bad fruit. And he said, neither will a bad tree bring forth good fruit. And you know what that's all about? It's all about your heart. And if you're living like this, and you haven't got this thing straightened out, the obvious conclusion of what Scripture says, there's something that's wrong with your heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to combat here. Has your heart been made right by the blood of Christ? And if it has, then your actions will show it. And if it doesn't, then you figure out what's wrong. So what is the gospel according to you? If you bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you, if you pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, then your gospel is the same according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John And more importantly than that, your gospel is the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saving faith makes a difference in your heart, and your heart makes a difference in your actions. If there is no difference, you better do some checking up on your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what principles that we learn here, there needs to be a very definite difference in our lives if we claim to be Christians. And if we can go on living this way and mistreating others and showing that we have contempt for them, even people in our own church, how in the world are we ever going to deal with people that are on the outside? We've got to get this right among our own people before we can ever hope to be a a people that is compassionate upon those that are in the world. So, Lord, I ask you to help us with this. May you speak to our hearts, and I pray that there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would understand that they can't put these things into place as a mechanical process, but this is something that's worked by the Holy Spirit in the individual heart. And then when these things have been worked in us, they will show on the outside in our treatment of others. Speak to our hearts today, Lord, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.